Acts 2, verses 22 to 32, and I invite you to turn there with me and follow along as I read. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you, did not, you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let the Holy One see corruption. You have made him known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb was, is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Thank you, Linda. Every once in a while, it's just good to pause and look at who you're talking to, right? Just make eye contact with you. It's good to see you this morning and uh, to come together to celebrate the gospel. We are in a series on the creed, and the creed is like a map, we said. Uh, a map that's giving us the main points along the way, and a map that you could, at a glance, you know, see where you're going. So not every point, but the main intersections along the way. Sometimes, though, on a journey, you come to an intersection, and even though the map appears to be clear, you're still at a crossing place, and you have to make a choice, um, and you're not sure. Like, others might think the map is clear, but you're not clear. Has that ever happened to you? You, you just come to a place, and you're like, I know we're supposed to turn here or go straight, but I'm not sure about it, so what do you do? Well, most men just step on the gas, right? <laughs> but what should you do? Slow down and ask for help. Yeah, thank you. Slow down and, and, and think about where this is going to go. Think about your next step. So today, this phrase that we have in front of us for the creed has us sort of standing at the intersection doing this. Like, I'm um, not sure. This is a int really interesting phrase. He descended to the dead. So we're, we're kind of scratching our heads here, and I, I want to encourage you to think through this with me. I, I, 
maybe you did not wake up this morning and say, I really, will, I really want to go to church and put on my thinking cap. I just want to go to church and enjoy worship. You know? Well, I want to ask you to do both. I want to ask you to put on your thinking cap with me for just a second and sort through because we're here at an intersection and we're asking ourselves, what, what does this mean, he descended to the dead? What does this phrase really convey? Um, should it be he descended to hell? Some editions of the creed have he descended to hell. Or should it not be in the creed at all? This is a challenging question. Some theologians, like Wayne Grudem, for example, have suggested that the phrase should not be in the creed since this line, this particular clause, descended to the dead, is not in the earliest manuscripts of the Latin or Greek creeds. Therefore, maybe it wasn't there. Therefore, it's probably not a biblical idea. Is kind of the way he argues. He believes that when Jesus died on the cross, at that very moment, his soul went to be present with the Father. Jesus did say to the thief on the cross, what? Today, you'll be with me in paradise. On the other hand, the resurrected Jesus said, to Mary, before he ascended, don't cling to me, I have not yet ascended to the Father. Indicating that he had not yet ascended to the Father. So, we're kind of stuck between those two key verses, those two thoughts. Did he immediately go, did his soul, we know his body went in the ground, we, we don't have any question. Christianity rises and falls on the body of Jesus being buried in a tomb. So we don't have any question about that. Our question is, where was his soul? Where was the rest of him for three days? So that's what we're kind of sorting through this morning, and we want to think through this well. Um, some, of you are, some of you are asking, why is, it back, why is it back in the creed in front of us? Because... Way back when, eight or nine years ago, I asked the other pastors if we could take that phrase and just set it to the side for a little while while I was sorting through my thinking. So nine years later, <laughs> thanks for your patience, nine years later, I think I have personally more clarity and I think our pastoral team has a little more clarity and we're trying to, to affirm what we should affirm and um, so we're including this line, um, and I can explain more about that during the question and answer period. If you're interested in the Q&A after the service, uh, we'd love to talk more about, you know, the backstory on that. Um, but I was suspicious for some time about leaving that line in the creed. I, I'm no longer suspicious about that, and I want to try to explain why this morning. Which reminds me, as we're trying to clarify things, the, three does, the, the creed does three things for us. The creed does at least three things. It brings clarity, right? Personal clarity and biblical theological clarity. It brings maturity. It shapes our understanding over time and appreciating what the most important doctrines are that we should be focused on. And it brings unity. Unity because, unity because we are united in our faith, confessing our faith, but also because we're tied to a long, long line of believers who have confessed these same words, who have believed the same gospel that the creed summarizes. 
Again, we're not preaching the creed, we're preaching the gospel and uniting ourselves to the faith that's been once for all delivered to the saints. So clarity, maturity, and unity. And I think, my hope is today that as we walk through this phrase, we'll get more clarity, uh, have an appreciation and, and a sense of maturity so we can do this without being dogmatic about it. And I should say, you know, you can be in that, you could be in any one of those places, really. You could say, I think it should say descended to hell in the tradition of the church. Or you could say, I think it means descended to the dead in the tradition of the church, which I'm going to explain today. Or you could say, with Grudem and others, I don't think it should be in the creed. You could take any one of those three views and still sing and smile and be happy in this church this morning. Can I get a witness? Okay. I hope that, I hope that is where we're going. So having said that, let's think about clarity, maturity, not being dogmatic about this particular line, and unity, learning from those who have confessed this long before us. All right, so having said that, and I'm not speaking for all the pastors, by the way, this morning. I'm speaking for me and trying to lay out on behalf of our church what I think descended to the dead means. So, you know, other guys may say this with a little more nuance or a different way, but this is what I've got for you this morning. So here we go. Number one, I got three simple, hopefully three points. Um, number one, Jesus fully experienced death in body and soul. Jesus fully experienced death, including in his soul. His body was buried and his soul was consciously present, this is what we're saying, was consciously present in the realm of the dead. It did not go immediately to heaven with the Father. I think that's the more natural reading of Acts 2 and Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2 where Peter says, in verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. Up to this point, death has had the power to keep every single person in the world in its grasp. Genesis chapter 3, the result of the fall is death, physical death and spiritual death. So that by the time you read Genesis chapter 5, you hear this, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, over and over again, like, like clods of dirt falling on top of a casket. It just won't stop. But Peter says here, God raised him up doing something for Jesus that humanly speaking, he could not do for himself. Still preaching to the men of Israel, Peter then quotes Psalm 16, and his main point in quoting Psalm 16, for, verse 25, for David says, the psalmist writes about the Messiah. David, inspired as a prophet and as a songwriter of Israel, writes about Jesus. And he was talking about him when he said, verse 27, you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. David was not writing about himself. David was buried, and, and we know where his tomb is. And, and, and so David must have been writing about someone else. Look down at verse 30. 
being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him who, that he would set one of his descendants, one of David's descendants on the throne, David foresaw and spoke, verse 31, about the resurrection of Christ, that he would not be abandoned to Hades, nor would his flesh see corruption. Now watch this. Peter has two parts to his argument. If you go back to verse 27, you can see them most clearly. In verse 27, there's two parts to Peter's argument. He, something's not going to happen to his soul. It won't be left in Hades. And something else is not going to happen to his body. It will not experience decay and corruption like a human body would once buried in the ground. Peter seems to read from verse 27 that Jesus, that there are two parts to this Jesus. Just like any other person in the world, there are two parts to him. He's body and soul. And so his soul's not going to be left to corrupt in the ground. Uh, I'm sorry, his body is not going to be left to corrupt in the ground. Nor will his soul be left where? In Hades or Sheol. Sheol, the Old Testament way to describe it, Hades, the New Testament way to describe it. I'm going to come back to what that is in just a second. Like, what is the place of the dead? But I, what I just want you to see at this point is that Peter, uh, Peter seems to have in mind that, that unless he's delivered from Hades, that's where his soul will is and will remain. Another passage that affirms, I think, that Jesus descended to the place of the dead is Ephesians chapter 4. You, you don't have to turn there now, but look at it later. It, Ephesians 4 is that place where Paul is talking about uh, how God has gifted the church, and the one who has gifted the church is the one who, who ascended and led captives in his ascent, but he who ascended first, you remember this, first descended. Where did he descend? To the lowest regions of the earth. Some commentators think that's a reference to the incarnation. Uh, Jesus descended, came down to the earth so that he could rescue us. But I don't think it goes quite far enough. Yes, it includes the incarnation, but, but the language of descent and lower regions really seems to point to Sheol and Hades. Ephesians 4, uh, 8, 9, and 10. So these kind of passages have me thinking Jesus fully experienced death in body and in soul, just as all humans do. This is a good place to remind us that death is not a natural state for humanity. Death is the result of the fall of mankind, and Jesus became fully human to the point that he experienced the full reality of death. I, I think this is, this is like a really important point. This is, this is the point of the argument behind this first point. That, that Jesus experienced the full reality of death. He did not die one moment on the cross and then rise the next moment. We know that. He did not die one moment on the cross, say it is finished, and then rise. He really remained dead for three days. In fact, Jesus will say, it's like being in the belly of the whale for three days. He was really fully dead. That's the first point. Here's the second point. And you start to, you're going to start to feel the gospel here, I hope, okay? He defeated death and reversed the curse. Now look at verse 28 with me. 
Peter says verse 28 is what happened to Jesus. If he's got Jesus in mind as he's saying he, Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 16, and he is, he's the only true fulfillment of, of Psalm 16. David was not just writing about himself. So if Jesus, if, if what's true about ver, Jesus in verse 27, if, it's, if verse 27 is true about Jesus, then verse 28 is true about Jesus. So, so what Peter's saying is, is the resurrection of Christ is the entrance into the path of life verse 28 you've made known to me the paths of life you'll make me full of gladness with your presence mark three words in that verse life gladness and presence life gladness and presence Th those are words that testify that we're talking about the risen Christ we're talking about the resurrection Christ Peter's in uh, life and gladness and presence none of those things None of those things are found in Sheol or Hades. None of them. When Old Testament saints died, listen to this, when Old Testament saints died in faith, they did not immediately experience the presence of God. They did not Im immediately experience life and gladness and the presence of God. Their souls went to Sheol, awaiting a time when God would rescue them from the dark darkness and hopelessness and curse of the grave. Sheol was not a happy place. It's not a place of life and gladness and presence. Not the presence of God. Sheol is what we call the intermediate state. It's a conscious existence between death and resurrection. So when you think about Sheol or Hades, think that there's this conscious existence between the moment of death and what will happen in the end. That's, that's what, what we call the intermediate state. It's in, in the Old Testament, it's a place of silence and darkness. I'll spare you all the citations here, but if you want to hear more, let me know. It's a place of silence and darkness. It's a place from which no one can deliver himself or herself. It's a place where no one praises God. It's a place where people go upon death, and therefore it's not a good place. It's the inevitable effect of a fallen world that is experiencing corruption. It's also a place over which God has absolute sovereignty. Psalm 49, Proverbs 15. And from which, it's the place over which God has absolute sovereignty and from which he will save all those who trust in him. Just think about this, you've been reading the Psalms, being saved out of Sheol. In short, it's the place where Old Testament believers are awaiting the power of Christ's resurrection. And that's precisely why Jesus has to go there to fully identify with us in death and truly experience three days of darkness and silence. The descent of Jesus to the dead, think about it like this. It's the final stage of his humiliation. Here's what I mean by that. God himself chose to enter all the way in. He didn't just come down, which he did, but he enters all the way into the full experience of death. He took the curse of death. In that way, he took the curse of death upon himself. 
the curse that affects us, the punishment we deserve, the past we are hurrying to meet. Listen, we are hurrying to meet our past. The abandonment into which humanity has fallen. One pastor wrote it this way, in the death of Jesus Christ, God has humiliated himself in order to obey his own law upon sinful man by taking his place in death and once for all removing from man and placing on himself that curse. In the death of Jesus, God has humiliated himself. That's the radical proposal of Christianity, that the answer that Christianity has to life and death and future is that God has so deeply entered into our condition that he's humiliated himself to the point. I mean, nothing's more humiliating than death. Think about it. God puts himself in man's place. God has humiliated himself in order to obey the judgment, obey the law, obey what would have to come because God is righteous and just and holy and perfect. God put himself in man's place as a sheer act of grace. And according to Peter, David's body remains in the tomb. He said, we know where the tomb is. His body is still here. In fact, later in the passage, it says, he has not yet ascended. That's interesting. David, of David, it says, he has, he, his body's in the tomb. He has not yet ascended. There's no record. Nobody talks about this. There's no part of this song in the story of Israel that David has already ascended. Why? Because David's ascension is waiting for someone else's ascension. So, here's what happens at the resurrection of Jesus. There is a great, amazing, cosmic reversal that occurs that's made possible through the death, the burial, the descent into the dead, among the dead, the descent to the realm of the dead, and the resurrection of Christ. There's a great cosmic reversal that was made possible through the death, burial, descent, and resurrection of Jesus. The descent itself, this is what I'm starting to think as I read scripture, the descent itself is probably when David and all the Old Testament saints were released for the first time from the captivity of the grave and from Sheol and from Hades and allowed to be in the joyful presence of God. That would also explain how all believers now go immediately into the Lord's presence when they die. So that Old Testament saints and any of us who've died on this side of the resurrection will go immediately to be in the presence of the Lord. So Paul would say, to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. That could not be said prior, this is my proposal. This is what I'm suggesting. That could not be said prior to the resurrection of Jesus. That could not be said prior to the cosmic reversal. That could not be said until he descended fully into the experience of death and defeats it and reverses the curse. Now let me show you where I, like, let me show you one other key passage of Scripture that, where I think this becomes even more clear. Turn with me. It's always fun to turn to the last book, isn't it? Turn with me to the last, especially when you're talking about something like this. Turn to the last book in the Bible, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 18. 
This has been one of the more compelling things that I, this, this has me sort of locking in on, you know, he, he really, he descended to the dead. He did not descend to hell. Hell in the New Testament is the place of torment. Hell in the New Testament is also described as Gehenna, the eternal lake of fire. Hell in the book of Revelation is something that um, death and Hades will be cast into. So Sheol and Hades are not the same thing as hell, so I'm saying I'm uncomfortable with the phrase descended to hell, but I'm increasingly comfortable with the phrase descended to the dead. Look at Revelation chapter 1 and verse 18. We would naturally think, so we would naturally think, all right, let me, let me set you up for just a second. We, we would naturally think of Jesus' descent as the end of something. He's descending, descent, descended, uh, descended to the dead. He's, he's descending, we think of it as the end of something, and it is. It's the most humiliating experience. Death is the lowest part of human existence. But in the gospel of Christ, it's also the hinge and the turn to victory. It's the beginning of his ascent. So I'm saying this is the third point. Jesus' descent is where the ascent begins. It's where gospel victory begins. Uh, th this is the gospel moment. Like, I think it's actually a gospel moment. This, it's a three-day gospel moment where he's fully experiencing death. Revelation 1.18. Okay, here's what it says. John, uh, who's receiving this vision from the risen Christ, verse 17 says, when I, when I saw him, I fell as, as as if I were a dead man, I fell at my feet, at his feet, as if I were dead. But he, Jesus, the risen Christ, laid his right hand on me and said, fear not, I am the first and the last. Now look at verse 18. The living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Here it is. And I have the keys of death and Hades. I have the keys. Turns out Steve Green was right. He holds the keys. Do you remember that old Steve Green song? He holds the keys? It was a classic late 80s Steve Green, I think. Going way back. Some of you are like, man, 80s, that's not very far. Jesus says, I have the keys of death in Hades. Throughout church history, it has been very common to connect this passage with the descent clause. And for good reason, because the natural reading of the text gives the sense that these keys once belonged to death and Hades. The keys once belonged to death and Hades, but someone has forcibly taken them from death and Hades. Who took the keys from death and Hades? It's a, it's a, way of, it's a figurative way of describing who reversed the curse, who trampled on death, who killed death itself. Somehow, through the mysterious saving work of the triune God, there was a battle between Jesus and death. I do not know how that happened. People who start to build out the details of that, you need to kind of back away from that. We, we don't know. But 
there's this battle between Jesus and death. It makes the most sense to me that that happens in the very realm of death from the very place where he was imprisoned. From the very place where he was imprisoned, he broke the bonds of death, its power and its curse, and he took the keys on the way out. So as Richard Balkum describes it, he says this, uh, highly respected uh, commentator, uh, 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 New Testament commentator, he says this, Revelation 1.18 assumes that the gates of Hades, which release none who have ever entered it, have been for the first time opened for a man to leave. The divine prerogative of releasing anyone from the realm of death now belongs to Christ. He took the keys with him. He conquered death in this mysterious battle where the triune God is overcoming death through the death and in the death of his own son, the Son of God. What was Jesus doing during those three days of silence and darkness? I don't know. What was he doing during those three days of silence and darkness his body's in the tomb. His soul is conscious in the realm of the dead. I don't know, but in my sanctified imagination, I like to think this, that he is waiting in silence and in darkness for the Father to say, now, and take the keys with you on your way out. That's awesome. The Father is waiting to say, let's go. Take the keys with you. Death is over forever. Now you have the keys and you can give it to whoever. You can give life to whoever you want. So Jesus stares death in the face while he's rising out of there and he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live again. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus overcame death and that he is the giver of life and that he holds the keys? And he doesn't just unlock the future life. He's unlocking everything for you. He's, like we were singing a week or two ago, sin's curse and grip no longer has this hold on me. He's unlocking everything bad and reversing the curse. Is he doing that in your life? This is why during the early years of persecution, Athanasius would say of the martyrs of the church, they were weak by nature, but they would step forward to death, no longer afraid of death, no longer of the, uh, afraid of the descent into Hades, but they would rather challenge it as eager souls, he says. Wow, what a thought. Is your soul eager to see if the gospel is believable and real and true as you face death? We don't know anything about persecution in this country. Not yet. But may God... Help us to be eager souls. Matt Emerson, in his really good book on this descent clause, says, We therefore dig our graves. Listen to this. 
we dig our graves facing to the east, knowing that as our bodies decompose, our souls remain with Christ, awaiting the day when He, with loud trumpets, will return and reunite body and soul so we can live forever with Him by the power of the Spirit to the glory of God the Father. Let's bury our bodies facing east, done with this frail thing, because it's breaking down. I mean, I think from the time you hit, you know, 35, it's just it's a, like cruising altitude's 35, and but once you hit 36, you're on the descent. So let's bury these frail bodies. Listen, let's bury these frail bodies that are already breaking down toward the east with great hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for stealing the keys. Well, they were yours to begin with, and you took them back. They were God's to begin with, and you took them back. Thank you for unlocking not only eternal death, and we no longer fear that, but thank you for unlocking sin and its enslavement and selfishness and defeating the evil one. As we celebrate the table, God, teach us today about the power of the overcoming one. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.